Hello, beautiful friends. Welcome to the Plug Podcast by B-Vibe. I'm your host, Luna Matadas. I'm a sex and pleasure educator, and we're going to travel anally in this episode all about butt stuff around the world. It's easy to be lost in our own booty holes in our own backyard, but what about anal pleasure in other different cultural, social, or geographic contexts? How is this connected to our pleasure in North America? And what can we learn about our own pleasure by getting curious about the way other people talk about and experience pleasure? The Plug Podcast is brought to you by B-Vibe. If you're looking for high quality and innovative toys, like the world's first rimming butt plug, inclusive marketing, and a commitment to pleasure education, B-Vibe is your boo. If you are loving the Plug Podcast, please subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. So we get into everything in this episode from sodomy laws to sex ed curriculums, the power of queer and feminist sex shops, and so much more. I got to chat with my lovely and very dear and brilliant friend and sex ed superhero, Dr. Jess O'Reilly. Jess O'Reilly is a sex and relationship expert with a background in education. Her research and passion involves teacher training in sexual health, and she volunteers in schools and universities to help bring better sex and relationship education to students across Ontario. Jess is also a television personality, author, and podcast host of the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast, which is phenomenal. You have to go listen to that. And an international speaker who has facilitated hundreds of corporate workshops and retreats in 35 countries from Lebanon to Costa Rica. In this episode, we're also really lucky because we're hearing from other sex educators. So we have submissions from four other sex educators. You can find their incredible work on Instagram and we've linked them in the show notes for you as well. Okay, are you ready to travel? You're buckling up? All right, let's go explore booty around the world. Oh my gosh, Jez, I'm so happy to to have you back. You helped us open the season one of the Plug Podcast, and here you are helping us round out season two. So welcome back. So excited to be here. We're, we're talking butt stuff. We're talking butt stuff. And, and I feel like what a great way, you know, we're recording in the morning. And so it's a wonderful, like, booty morning for us. Good morning. Do you want to know something? So folks may not know, but I have a partner named Brandon. And Brandon saw that I had Luna in the calendar this morning. He's like, do you need me? Do you need me? I'm like, no, you're not even invited. He wanted to come talk butt stuff. But it's just, Aww. it's it's a two-person game right now. <laughs> okay, we'll have to bring, tell Brandon we'll bring him back for his own episode. I'm not telling him that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Brandon. I tried. I tried. <laughs> he can he can do something other than the butt. I don't know the what's the opposite of the butt. The top. But it would the be head? good like like booty alliteration. It would be like Brandon's booty bonanza. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll I'll tell him. You guys can do your own thing. But I'm not getting on there for his butt jokes. Fine, fine. It's always gonna be the what the what what in the butt. <laughs> his like favorite thing. Oh my god, that's my favorite thing too. I love that. This would be a good episode. Well, I'm so glad to to have you here to talk about booty stuff around the world. And you travel so much. You are all over the place. And so I think you're you've got such a and also an interesting kind of little bird's eye view of like popping into different places and experiencing what the impact is of cultural, social, uh, geographic kinds of influences on the way we we talk about pleasure and and sex. Is that is that true? Is that sort of yeah, absolutely. So I really do work all over the place and in places that I think Westerners are most surprised by, right? So like I work, I'll work in or I was working in China. They won't let me in anymore. But, you know, and across India and in, you know, in the UAE, in Lebanon, in all of these places. And what's interesting to me is that no matter where you go, people have the same curiosities. They have the same passions. They have the same hangups. And the only difference I see is there's a difference in willingness to admit that sex is challenging, whether it be booty sex or any other type of sex. And so the Western world tends to think that like we're the most progressive and we're the most on the ball and, you know, we're the most creative and the rest of the world is so hung up and the rest of the world is so uptight. Uh, And I actually think that really holds us back in the West because when I travel specifically to the East – 
people will admit, hey, Jess, this is actually really hard for us, or I'm really uncomfortable Mm. with this, or we really struggle with this. And when you're willing to admit that there's a struggle, I feel like it's so much easier to overcome than when you're just beating your chest saying like, I know it all, I've got this. And so I do find that there's more of an openness to learning, at least in the groups I work with in the East. And of course, I don't want to, you know, speak about an entire region as a monolith. uh, But, you know, I'm Chinese and I'm also Caribbean, but I'm born and raised in Canada. And so I've watched all of these worlds collide for my entire life. And the judgment that I've felt from Westerners because I'm Chinese, the stigma, the fetishization, All of those things is so intense. And I'll tell you, I think it holds the West back. Yes, we have access to information. Uh, Yes, we have many options in terms of, you know, education that's in English and accessible, uh, not in the schools, but from, you know, educators like you and me and the rest of the fabulous folks in our field uh, that perhaps maybe other people don't have access to, but for financial reasons or just because of language barriers or whatnot. But I think we hold ourselves back by showing off and really not admitting that, damn, this is tough. We have a lot to learn because sex continues to be a topic that's taboo. Oh, my goodness. I I could not agree more. I think that there's so much um, that humbleness can add to our pursuit of pleasure because humbleness allows for curiosity. It allows for, hey, maybe there's another way to think about or do this thing. And that allows us to also change as we grow in our bodies or in our perspectives, in our partnerships and who or what we're attracted to or what turns us on. And I love hearing you talk about this. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a bit more because I want to get into it since I'm also from a a Caribbean background, but I I want to hear about, you know, this, this, mix and these these intersections of all of these parts of you coming together and then also being in a place like Canada. And I don't know if you went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school. You did. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's hear about that. Tell me, tell me how all this came together to shape how you think about pleasure or sex. You know, it's interesting. I think because my mother is mixed already, she's hyphenated Chinese Jamaican. She already had the um, practice and necessity of merging cultures. So when she came to Canada, I think there was an openness to just like grabbing the pieces that appealed to her as opposed to this desire to hold on to the old country. Because if you know about Chinese in Jamaica, we're Hakka Chinese, uh, we've been there for generations, and we already are kind of a standalone culture. So she already had to pull from Chinese plus pull from Jamaica and make and, and make those two work. So sometimes I don't even know whether, you know, a practice, not not sexual, but like a cultural practice. I don't know if it's Chinese. I don't know if it's Jamaican. And I don't know if it's Chinese Jamaican. Or I don't know if it's just my mom's special stew that she's kind of put together. And so, you know, yes, there were there was definitely some shyness around sex. Like we weren't like, you know, the West Coast hippies who are like, you know, t- telling where they were telling me everything about sex. But there was also an openness where like my mother bought me books about sex when I was younger. Um, when I think she saw me touching myself for pleasure when I was a little kid, there was no shame in that. She just said, actually, you need to do that in your bedroom. And wow. I... I I could credit my mom individually just because that's just her or maybe the fact that she already is a blend of cultures. She's had to like pick, choose, refuse and really is expert at that. And I think that, you know, people always joke with me because I'm Chinese, I'm Jamaican. So, you know, there's the Asian influence, but there's the Caribbean influence. I'm also half white. I'm Canadian and people are like, oh, you just choose whatever cultures, you know, relevant to you or useful to you at at the time. And I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely what I do. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, you know, we think about the Caribbean culture, the way I think colonial racist views have hypersexualized, especially I'll talk about Jamaica, because that's the country I know, um, hypersexualized Jamaicans, like, um, you know, with stereotypes around both men and women. And I I remember as a kid thinking, wow, like that really doesn't add up because I found Uh, Jamaican culture quite careful and prudish and reserved around sex but then you'd hear these stereotypes um, and I think you know the problem is that westerners and folks who come from all of us you know who live in countries that are colonized and benefit from colonialism um, tend to see things through like well I observed it for five minutes therefore it is yes and so they'll like see a dance hall video or like a pasa pasa party and be like, oh, that's what it's like. I'm like, is that what you think Jamaicans do all day? 
dance in the street, grind in the street. Like, yeah, that's a part of it. Also, things that you might see as sexual here Mm -hmm. may not be sexual in another place, right? And so... Uh, you know, it's it's a journey. Like you know, I, I think that you're also you're current. You're Guyanese. Yeah, my family's from Guyanese, and yeah, also like a mix racially and ethnically within that. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's this fusion, and we can't necessarily just like put it, it very neatly into boxes to figure out like what lens or what perspective this is coming from. So when you said that, that was very relatable. Yeah, I get. I think the one thing I should note, if I had to sum it up, not very well, <laughs> is that um, all around the world, people want to do a bunch of things, and it's not yeah. like, oh, everyone in this city wants anal, and everyone in this country wants oral. I think there's curiosity. If there's pleasure to be had, there's curiosity across the board. Absolutely, absolutely. And i I have a I have a question. So when I I'm fascinated that your mom gave you a book on on sex because. I got a book from the library when I got my period and it was called 27 days or 20 days or whatever. And it was just left on my bed. And like, that was the extent of like my sex ed conversation. And so I was in Catholic school getting all these pamphlets, basically just explaining reproductive anatomy. And even in, in my household there, there was definitely shame around masturbation. I was, I, I had a very different experience than you where my mom walked in on me very young and was like, you know, if you never do it again, I won't tell your dad. And so I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what did I do? I don't even know. And um, for, for <laughs> genitals, my, I learned that my vulva was my pom-pom. Like that, that's all I learned. Like what, what did you, did you learn proper names for um, sexual parts or? No, they called it the punji. Um, again, don't know if that's Jamaican or Chinese or just a word my parents made up. Um, I mean, they were so careful they wouldn't even use the word fart. Like they called fart dapi, which they said was, you know, Chinese, which I don't think it is. Like, I think they just made it up. Uh, and it was super confusing for me. This is kind of off topic, but I remember this old white couple was at the house once and my dad passed wind as he does. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I was like embarrassed as a kid. I was like, Mr. And Mrs. So-and-so are here Oh, here's what happened. I have to back it up. My dad said, oh, I dapied. And I was like, dad, not in front of the old white people, although my dad is also an old white person. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 Mr. and Mrs., let's just call them Smith, don't even know what dapi means. And I was like, old white people don't fart, only my dad farts. This is so confusing. But can't they smell or hear? I know, right? I know. I'm sure he likes his own brand and is I'm like, sure it smells does. delicious. It's pumpkin pie and spice and all things nice. So... Yes, I was not taught the correct terms, but my mom bought me two books. What One was called Where Do I Come From, which was about oh. reproduction. Mm-hmm. The other one was called What's Happening to Me. Um, they were not, you know, perfect. It's not like there was a big discussion of pleasure or anything, but they had pictures and little cartoons and then real pictures. Uh, I do remember, I can say this, looking at the development of uh, girls through puberty and seeing Ooh. pictures yeah. and wondering why I didn't look like that. Right. Because okay. it was a I guess they I guess the way to describe them was they kind of look like not supermodels, but like models. Sure. Um, and so I didn't look like that and I wasn't developing like that. Like I wasn't getting those hips. And, you know, they say like, oh, you need the hips to have kids. And I remember thinking like, well, will I be able to have kids? I mean, good news. I'm not trying to have kids. So <laughs> hips or no hips, I'm child free. But <laughs> You're good. <laughs> I blame the book. I blame the book. So, um, you know, um, I do wish there had been perhaps um, without, you know, I'm not criticizing my parents here, but um, and my dad didn't do anything just to be clear. It was my mother <laughs> who helped and talked. Um if there had been more nuanced conversations around these topics to support the literature with which I was provided, uh, it probably would have been good. Uh, I was also really lucky, you know, aside from culture, I had a really healthy first relationship in the beginning where we like talked about things and we went to the health station where I could get birth control. And he said, you know, his older sister would go with me if I needed. So I had that positive first experience around sex. And actually, this, I don't know if you saw this new study that came out. I wish I could pull it up. But it's uh, about the fact that the first sexual experience influences women's future sexual desire. It just, I just saw it come out last week. So a woman's wow. first sexual experience imp- impacts her sexual desire later in life. Uh, but they didn't find the same for men. And this was actually a University of Toronto study that I have open in one of my um, 96 tabs that I plan on reading. But uh, (laughs) I I do think it's a really interesting one uh, to to explore how, er and I I bet you that it's not just around gender. I think sometimes even when we say, oh, it affects men, but not women. Well, where are the non-binary folks? Where are the trans folks? Um, 
and is our research biased in, biased in the way we look at these things or ask the questions? So, yeah, super interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you I also remember my first anal experience. Ooh, tell me. Yeah, tell I, us. I think I was just so turned on that the muscles relaxed and I was able to do it. And mm-hmm. um, my partner, of course, was, like, slow and gentle and followed my lead. But I remember because I, I was in university. I was probably in first-year university. And I was working at the sex ed center, like the peer counseling center, which is how I kind of got my start. And I remember um, everyone was queer. And so I had a penis partner and I went in and was like so excited that I had anal. And I remember like all my friends were like, oh, OK, like we've all been there, done that. But it took me longer to get there. I was like so excited. I wanted a badge. Basically, I was like, where I do I get my my blue swimming badge? Right. <laughs> my brown badge. I want my brown shark badge. <laughs> you went to the deep end. <laughs> I did. Oh. What a positive first story. And 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 is so you know on on point with the advice you gave us in in episode one where it is so much about what your body wants and desires in that moment and when we push past that there's this disconnect then between our body and the pleasure that that it's able to receive and I love that you talk about you know kind of this this experience of growing up and learning about sex and I'm guessing you know you didn't get a book on like booty sex right like there like, was definitely no booty that. sex bo- yeah. book no okay just to confirm you know, not like, even oh, pleasure pretty special but <laughs> no no it was basically about how the body changes and how babies are made but it was a good first step Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we've asked our audience what they think about including anal sex in uh, sex education curriculum. And if people are listening and they are wondering, how do I talk to my kids about pleasure? Both Jess and I love sex positive families. They're a great resource for this kind of information on how to have those conversations. But overwhelmingly, our audience said, yeah, like we should be talking about the anus as an erogenous zone if we can even get, you know, sex ed curriculum to talk about pleasure in, in the first place. And so when we were doing research for this this episode, the factors that I think influence whether or not we talk about booty sex in sex education also showed up in the research because there there wasn't research around anal pleasure. Like a lot of the research was Mm -hmm. around either uh, homosexuality. And so then it assumed anal sex was part of uh, gay men's, gay cis men's sexuality. Um, It was also very gendered. It was either women or men. And it was Mm -hmm. largely about cisgender heterosexual women and cisgender gay men. So cis heterosexual men were kind of left out of it. Queer women were left out of it. Trans people and non-binary people left out of it. Um, And a lot of the research also focused on STIs, right? So we, we look at like, what are people interested in funding and studying and how they Mm -hmm. study it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other surprising thing was that um, it was really also, you use the word monolith. So a lot of times it was presenting a monolith. So it would take a study from Kenya and say, oh, like this many people have sex because of this. And, and it was, it was, interesting to think about but we know there are so many different populations that have different relationships to different kinds of sex because of their experiences so a sex worker in Nairobi might have a different anal sex experience or anal sex need for education or services or whatever than maybe somebody who decides like yeah this is not for me or like culturally this is this is sort of off and so have has that kind of um you know, shown up in the way that that you were also teaching? Like, how do we give information to people when there is so much uh, heterogeneity in in their experiences? Like, how do we empower people despite whatever the the cultural, or maybe in in the, not despite, what's the opposite of despite, but like, whatever, in like... In light with of it, with it, yeah, yeah. In light of or um, with inclusion of their their unique experiences. Yeah, I think that um, like for me, so I go back to the pedagogy. I come from a teaching background, and we always talked about it being student centered. And when you think about sex education, like one of the models we use is the IMB approach, right? Information, motivation, behavioral skills, and those that's an approach that's shown to be effective at creating positive behavioral outcomes, whatever that may be. Like, does that mean delaying sex? Does that mean engaging in more pleasurable sex? Does that mean communicating around sex? Oftentimes it's measured in using condoms, which is, you know, it can be attached to communication and understanding and intimacy and pleasure, of course. And in the IMB approach, one of the the first piece that precedes creating the material is ensuring that it's student-centered and asking them what they want to learn. So elicitation, um, 
the elicitation stage. I might be getting it wrong because it's been so long since I've since I've studied this. But it and that's what I do. Like in every single workshop I run, I send out an anonymous link and ask people what they want to talk about. What do they want to learn? But I also ask them what they want to share. Like what insights and experiences can everyone in the group learn from? Yeah, it's great that I get like a no percent uh, response rate. No, just kidding. <laughs> like some groups are super responsive. Like I sure. was in two di- I was in two different cities um, in the United States, like relatively small cities in the last week. And one was super responsive. I got a ton of questions and one was almost crickets. So, um, you know, it just it depends on, on, on the group. But I, I like to just focus on their needs. Like what do you want to learn about? What do you have to share? Um, and the interesting thing is that it doesn't matter where you are in the world like the questions at least because I'm working primarily with with couples in long-term relationships okay um, the questions are so common across the board like they so these are couples who are generally in like fairly happy relationships they have the resources to develop communication skills they have the resources and support um and I think a lack of stigma to seek therapy because mm. they're already part of learning groups that are focused right. on uh, both self-development and the growth mindset. And so they have all of these resources. So they have decent relationships, but they want excitement. So that's a, mm-hmm. the number one question is like, how do we make things exciting? And then it's also like, how do we try something new like anal, like watching porn, like consensual non-monogamy, like in its tiny little bite-sized pieces, like watching another couple or going to a sex club. Those are kind of the questions that I get. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Shanghai or um, Albuquerque or Zurich. It, it just doesn't matter. Like People have these similar curiosities across the board. So I think, again, we have to ask them, what do you want to know? How can I be useful? I love that. That works on this like macro level for education and it works on a, a micro level. Like we're new partners or a, an existing partner. Like what's going to do it for you? What? How have your previous experiences contributed to what's going to happen in this moment? And I mean, these are tough questions, right? I, we don't learn a lot of sexual communication. We don't know. We feel shy. We feel awkward. And it kind of is awkward. I mean, <laughs> it just it's accepting that awkwardness. Right. I mean, that's what my therapist is always saying. You got to sit in the discomfort, right? Whether mine's not around sex, it's around people pleasing. But uh, it, it, you know, it applies. She's always right, Carla. It doesn't matter where I go. I go to an anal sex podcast. Carla's always right. And yeah, you're right. And also, they're not one shot conversations. I think that's part of the thing, too. People are like, well, I already did that. I already had that. I already talked to her about that. I already discussed this with him. Okay. I mean, like anything in life that you develop, like you don't work out one time. You don't. Yes take one course and be like, I'm set. We're always learning and in lifelong learning that applies in the bedroom too. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's such a wonderful message for people to take away and to embrace sex as a skill, just like, like anything else. You're gonna try a new recipe. Let's try a new recipe in the bedroom and see if we like it. And if we don't, um, would you like to hear some of the fun facts that we found from around the world around booty stuff? I sure would. You sure would. Okay. Not like you can say no. So <laughs> I consent. <laughs> you consent. Thank you. Thank you. So we we found out, we just kind of looked for fun stats. And so again, the caveat that a lot of this information was in study, buried in studies around either porn or homosexuality or STIs um, or, or the criminalization of things like sodomy or um, also a homosexuality. So we found that um, over half of people in Greece have tried anal sex. So let's talk about stereotypes of (laughs) calling it Greek and it's anal. So 55% of Greeks report experiencing backdoor action while the global average remains at a third. And so we also know people lie, but like (laughs) this is the tough part with like sex research. Uh, In African countries where anal sex is is not banned, uh, Botswana, so homosexuality was was decriminalized, overriding a a past law that was imposing seven years for same-sex relationships. In Seychelles, the laws were also amended because the law before 2016 was 14 years if you were caught with sodomy. Oh, dear. Um, And then a lot of the Portuguese, the former Portuguese colonies, 
uh, Angola, Mozambique, um, these countries have kind of quietly removed anti-sodomy laws. So a lot of times we see homosexuality laws in places tied to sodomy laws, whereas sodomy laws don't always explicitly say, you know, it's anal sex that's banned, but it's any sort of sex that's considered not normative. And and so then that happens to, to kind of fall into anal sex. What do you think of some of those stats? I've got a couple more for you. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is that Again, if you have a, a very Western audience, that we have to remember where some of these laws came from. So again, I'll speak to the Jamaican situation, and you'll always hear North Americans, like, well, I guess they're part of North America, but like Americans and Canadians talking about Jamaica and its homophobia and its issues with homophobia. And I just want to go back to where those buggery laws yep. began, and they began with the colon with the colonizers. Mm-hmm. They came from the British. And so many of the people who were brought over from different cultures, from different countries, um, from an entirely other continent, didn't necessarily come with those values. And yes. so a lot of these hangups go back uh, in history and are tied to colonialism. Like we've seen this, it, we've seen this in the way sex has evolved in attitudes in China over the yes. years, in India over the years. So I think that's a really important piece. And then I'm so curious if the difference really exists or if the willingness or the pressure to say that you've done something is the real difference. I'm always curious about this with self-report. Like in Greece, is there pressure to say that you've done it? Sure. Um, Or is it just that it's more normalized? Like maybe, I don't know, maybe because of the history (laughs) Um, or maybe like access to sex education um, I'm curious, like, for example, what the Scandinavian countries where they have more pleasure-based sex education, right. what what their incidence of, uh, of anal partaking <laughs> yes. might be. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear that, too. And I think you, you make such a, a great point because when we also think about – the, the colonization of these old laws that are still there. And, and you know, some people might feel, oh, that's so shocking, like 14 years for Saudi. You know, also in North America, there's a lot of messed up laws that are still on the books. And, um, you know, I think I think there's there's this exportation of, of like shock and awe of oh, like this is happening. And, and then it positions us also as very free and we're also liberated and we have it so good and and so it actually removes a lot of the nuance of yeah no that's not true like it's actually much more complicated and messy than we think so in places where there are sodomy laws that may also conflict with the legal age of consent so you might be able to consent to sex at 16 but if you want to have anal sex it's actually illegal so you you are consenting to something but if it's the way that you want to have pleasure then you could be punished so this that existed here this, too yeah, right in absolutely. north america we've seen those laws that are rooted in homophobia yeah um and we see like you know yeah okay so there's these laws but let's just remember what happened in texas just the other day with right? the passing of these laws that disallows doctors uh, from supporting trans Patients, like we have all of these pieces. Aren't there laws in in different states where you can only own like one sex toy or something like that? Yeah, I think Alabama has an anti-obscenity law where you can't sell or like purchase sex toys within the state. So you can be in Mm. possession of them, but you can't. And to me, that was shocking. (laughs) Like what? Like this is this is still on the books. But, you know, we yeah, like you said, there's there's so many that we're seeing even come up as new and and we're starting to clamp down on that. Instead of um, crossing the border to get cheaper beer or cheaper gas at the state line, we're like going to cross just to get better, better butt plugs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything to declare? I mean, I know there's no officer at the border, but still. <laughs> So we've got a couple of stats from um, Thailand. So with the Thai culture of, uh, well, I mean, this is kind of broad sweeping, but it's the Thai culture of of sex work, um, including other kinds of iterations of LGBT sex work, means that there's a lot of anal-friendly sex play for purchase. And um, often sex workers may um, indicate or, or sort of list what kinds of services that that they are providing with an A plus next to their ad so that it signals for anal. So I love all these like kind of like code sort of things because A plus sounds like you're winning at anal. It's like you got winner. I love it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we like to win. Um, in Japan, there's actually prohibitions from selling vaginal sex unless you work in a, a soap land, which is a particular kind of um, brothel. However, the law doesn't elaborate on the illegality of compensated sex with other orifices. So that means means you can advertise like an AF service, which is an anal fuck service, um, and you can actually pre-order anal over the phone. 
which is oh, great. I like it. <laughs> I, I, I like app. that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then we also had you know some stats around porn. So, um, according to Pornhub, this is from 2017, but there's new stats out as well. Uh, you know, anal is always one of the most popular categories, right? So, I think in the 2021, we saw we saw the continuation of of Russia having one of the most um, prominent kind of anal. Um, popularity of, of what they're they're watching there and yeah did you did you have any thoughts on that about porn and anal? Oh <laughs> uh, well, I think porn has done a really um, powerful job of normalizing anal. Like when I find yes. the, there's two things people three things people always are asking about when it comes to like specific acts. It's squirting, threesomes, and anal. Yes, yes. And those are like <laughs> big trends uh, via porn. So they've normalized it. And I always joke like you know. You walk in, You the, there's a pizza delivery guy, he puts the pizza down, and all of a sudden his dick is in your bum sort of thing. Yeah. And so I, I do think that um, obviously popular culture, if we count porn as that, um, shapes culture, but it also reflects culture. And I do think that folks think, oh, well, if they're doing that, I ought to be doing it too. Uh, and I love that we're talking about anal, but I also want to tell people, like, you also don't have to have anal. Like, some people yeah. like it, some people don't. And if we could just normalize that for every single type of sex – We'd all be so much better off. But there is this normalization factor via porn where it's like, well, everybody's doing it. Like, and there's no warm up, there's no prep, there's no lube, there's no nuance, there's no discussion, there's no booty licking, um, usually. Uh, although, I mean, it's shifting because we're seeing better porn produced these days. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think overwhelmingly, if you look at anal porn categories on a place like Pornhub, you're just seeing a lot of hard, no lube no foreplay kind of thrusting and so everything is penetration focused everything is bigger harder better and and then this is the only place we're really looking to for information on how to do the sex i mean unless there are people are coming to your class or listening to the podcast or you know we're we're kind of stuck even when i was doing research everything that i googled was just a bunch of like porn categories came up and i was like this sucks we're like <laughs> Why is your search history so naughty? It's my work. I swear it's to God. I, God. I remember that when I first started in the field. I was like, I can't get any work done because porn just pops up. I'm just trying to do real work. Not, I mean, porn is real work, but it's not my just, work. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Googling, where is the porn? Horse porn. Horse porn. No, that's not what I'm looking for. No. Oh, my gosh. Okay, well, on the horse porn note, let's get <laughs> Before we get canceled by all the podcast platforms. Uh... <laughs> So we asked, uh, we reached out to a bunch of other sex educators in a bunch of other places, and we got so many great snippets. And so we asked them, you know, how does how does anal sex show up in their context of teaching and if there are any social or cultural or political influences that might affect how they teach anal sex or what people think about anal sex? So we, we've got four that we're going to listen to. Um, are you ready? Are you ready to listen to some? I'm ready for this. All right. All right. So our first one is the Indian sex therapist. And we're going to put links to everybody so that you're able to find them in the show notes afterwards. They're all doing amazing work. Uh, the Indian sex therapist is a licensed sex-focused trauma therapist working on sex, culture, and relationships. Uh, very arts-based and depth-focused. And also is supporting clinicians to be able to, to dig deeper into what pleasure might look like. So let's hear... Hi, um, my name is Neha Bhatt and I uh, go by Indian Sex Therapist on Instagram. I work with sex and sexual trauma um, across the Indian context all over the world um, and recently just been shuttling between the US and India. Um, I would like to answer the first question about how people in my cultural context feel about anal sex, if it's taboo or not, and what assumptions um, there are. So in my clinical practice, I get, um, I meet a lot of people who feel extremely um, confused about anal sex because they've been told from the cultural context of colonialism um, that, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's illegal Um and uh, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code was actually held accountable for this um, horrible, horrible um, 
push towards um, stigmatizing people who had anal sex, um, straight couples, queer couples, whoever. Um, it was considered unnatural and against um, against man against nature, essentially. Um, until recently, where it was uh, repealed after a lot of debate. But in general, there's a lot of confusion about whether it's legal or not. Um, however, on the other hand, there's a lot of acceptance within um, upper middle class um, heterosexual couples who access a lot of American pornography to try anal sex. Like it's definitely an ideal that people aspire to. So it's a very confused um, kind of understanding of this particular um, act of pleasure. And I wish that more of us were educated about just the absolute wonder that anal sex is. Okay, that was beautiful. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's It's amazing, like... Just what I think of first and foremost, apart from anal, is all the amazing people doing this incredible work across the world. Yes. And because do people meet you and think like, oh, my God, that's such a weird job. You're the only one I've ever met. And we're like, there's totally. thousands and thousands of us. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And also in the so many forces figure out like whose information is most important and whose is most relevant. And whereas like like you said, like kind of opening up and really being able to take in different perspectives and humble ourselves about, well, the way that I do things is not necessarily the best way for everybody. So I love I love that um, Niha also brought in, you know, the Indian penal code. Like, I think that this is this is stuff that that we forget about that actually has a really powerful influence on so many things from education to how we feel about it, to how other people feel about it. Like anal sex then becomes a value judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And those are things that I mean, as an outsider from a different country, I'm probably not going to be aware of. Right. And I do think it is yes. so important that people get to, you know, conduct the studies, lead the conversations, drive the movements in their in their own spaces, in their own cultures. Uh, and I think that sex is one of those areas, especially sex education and, and therapy itself, that has been so westernized and whitewashed um, and we haven't created enough opportunities for folks from diverse backgrounds. Yeah, it, it makes me think that when a lot of times when it comes up in any kind of media or conversation and we're, we're looking to other cultures as other, uh, and then we've, we've often got a lot of kind of uppity types of, of values around like what's okay there and what's okay here and what does that look like? And so I hear a lot of conversations, particularly around India and patriarchy and talking about sexism and all, or, or like you said, with Jamaica, with like, you know, this broad sweeping brush of like homophobia. And and I, I really want to hit home that these are, are systems that manifest through local and cultural systems or social systems or dynamics. But we have this stuff everywhere. You know, it's not like there's not patriarchy in Canada and the U.S., right? Like, who are we kidding? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm like just snapping my fingers along here because we do. We look at the flaws in others so that we don't have to look at it in ourselves. And it doesn't mean that like there, there can't be, you know, varying degrees in different places. But sometimes we also see things a certain way because it's the stereotype that we've been raised with. Yes. Yes. And likewise for liberation, like liberation might not be in the same way that, that we think about it. And it might look very different for for people. It might not be the same goals. Oh, yeah. And that when we think about social movements, we do think about like, how is it that I want to feel free? How is it that especially like, the language of empowerment? Obviously, I prefer liberation, but empowerment is the one that's kind of been commodity. It's the hot commodity. It's the one that people are using. And I'm like, well, your empowerment isn't my empowerment, isn't Luna's empowerment, isn't somebody else's empowerment. And so we, I, I think that I'm really glad that you're bringing in these conversations and hearing from these sex therapists and educators from all around the world because there are these important perspectives. And of course, they don't speak for everybody, but uh, I think it's really important that we don't only look at things through the Western lens, not because, not only because of cultural imperialism, but because we're all losing out, right? If yes. we look at th anything through a narrow lens, we're just, we're losing out on the capacity for connection and pleasure and intimacy and all sorts of joy and fulfillment. 
Ooh, yeah. Like it, we're just creating a more closed in way of, of being. And I get, you know, we're, we're afraid we might be nervous. Um, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy also teaches these kinds of behaviors to be fearful of the other, to have power over. And so, you know, we, we've got a lot of internal kind of undoing as well as, as cultural and systemic undoing wherever we are, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when I speak about this, I'm not in- excluding myself. Like I really am always learning, always unpacking, um, not doing it well enough, not doing it fast enough. And like I can look back at, you know, work from five or 10 years ago and think, wow, like that was really a narrow view. And so, uh, you know, even as so-called experts, we're just we're learning, like we're aggregating information, we're sharing data. We perhaps, you know, hear more insights on these topics because we talk to you know thousands of people, but we don't have the answers, right? Yeah. Oh, I love I love that we're we're in this like humble cupcake kind of mood today. I want a cupcake. <laughs> Me too. Now that I said it, God damn it. <laughs> I'm All right, we're gonna listen to Nicole from the Something Private podcast. Now, I found Nicole. Uh, Nicole's based in Singapore, and um, Nicole describes the podcast as having unfiltered conversations on female health, identity, society, and love. This podcast is fire. Like it is so good. The breadth of topics that Nicole covers and the perspectives and the questions that that are asked is really good. So I was so happy to. Um, have a contribution from them. So let's listen to Nicole. Hi, my name is Nicole. I'm from Singapore and I host a podcast called Something Private. So how do people in my cultural, social or geographical context feel about anal sex? Is it taboo? Um, Sex in general, I think is a really taboo topic in um, Singapore in general. I think people really shy away from talking about it doesn't mean we don't engage in it or you know like discuss it among our friends but I think the general population is still quite shy or feels a lot of shame or you know has like thoughts about what it means to engage in like premarital sex or um, other forms of sex in general I think so I think you can imagine what talking about anal sex would be like Um, I don't think people talk about it at all Um, it's very cute you guys asked are people having anal sex to protect virginity so I think People don't openly talk about it, but it's definitely something that, you know, you hear from like friends or like a friend of a friend has told you that, you know, this couple is engaging in, you know, sex in order to protect um, virginity, which there's so many things to unpack about that. But I think that you guys are quite spot on. It definitely happens. Is it seen as a gay men's activity only? Um, I think that sadly it is. Um, I think a lot of people here are not quite open to the idea of like, you know, sex if they're doing it or if they're talking about it beyond um, protecting virginity. So, yeah. Um, I definitely think that anal sex should be taught in sex ed in schools. To my knowledge, um, the sexual education here is one that, you know, still is very, that practices abstinence or is very fear-based, right? We encourage our students to be, to look out for, you know, like, um, unwanted pregnancies or like STIs, which is great. But I think this idea that has been spreading in like lots of other parts of the world, especially in like Europe, this idea of like holistic sexual education where, you know, respect, consent um, is taught in schools, I think is really important and that we could benefit so much from it here ourselves because, you know, um, there are a lot of cases of like sexual assault where, you know, people are secretly videoing each other like bathing or like girls um, have their pictures being spread around in all these like group chats with lots of different people who are strangers, you know, having their private photos shared in confidence. It's still a really big um, harassment issue here. I think all stems from a lack of proper sexual education. So beyond just, you know, like the traditional fear-based sex education, I think there's a lot that we need to be taught in our schools and we can benefit, you know, from from having like open honest conversations about sex in our schools from a very young age. So, yeah. Oh my gosh, Nicole dropping all the wisdom. What do you think, Jess? Absolutely. I mean, all of these issues around harassment, around assault, around, you know, sexting, around consent. First of all, they exist across the globe. And uh, sex education is the preventative medicine. I mean, that's my background. Uh, That's why I got into this field was to make a difference in the classrooms. Of course, it's not easy to get into the classrooms. 
But uh, we know, like we have all the data in the world to tell us that comprehensive sex education produces these positive outcomes we're looking for. We have evidence showing that abstinence-only education doesn't work. We also have to know that abstinence education and comprehensive sex education are not mutually exclusive because in comprehensive sex education, we also talk about abstinence. And so whether we are talking about consent or anal pleasure and kind of everything in between, it begins with education because that helps to normalize the conversation. It offers opportunities for people to learn the communication skills. Uh, I'd love to see, you know, beyond just talking about the mechanics and pleasure and safety, also talking about personal values, like creating space for people to really consider, like, how do I feel about this? What does it mean to me? Does it align with my physical desires, with my personal values, perhaps with like my spiritual beliefs, all of these things, but we don't make space for it. We kind of have, you know, sex education as this little addendum to the health and physical education curriculum. Uh, And I think uh, really we can change the world (laughs) if we start investing uh, across the board. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I think this this idea that our sex and our sexual feelings are separate from our overall mental and physical well-being is, is also probably some old school kind of nonsense from patriarchy and systems of body control. And, and our body autonomy comes from when we understand, like, how, how, how would I feel safe? doing something? How would I feel great doing something? What would that look like? Do I feel that I have the agency to ask for that? Do I have the language? Do I have the support? Um, And I love what Nicole said about virginity, because this was definitely a thing in Catholic school. Um, Mm -hmm. I heard people talking about anal all the time, and I didn't know what it was. I was a virgin. If I'm doing like the the air quotes, whatever. Virginity is made up, everybody. It's all made up. It's stupid. Um, But but when we, we we talk about it. I mean, some people definitely value the, the, the propaganda around virginity because it is assigned to such powerful consequences about your moral and social character. And um, so to undertake something like anal sex, not necessarily for pleasure, but for the protection of, of virginity also is is not about liberation. If, if you choose to do that and you feel comfortable with it and, and it aligns with stuff, that's great. But without having the education provided to people to make make these decisions from a place of, of um, body autonomy, then, then we don't have sovereignty around that. We just have a whole bunch of propaganda around virginity. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is a big conversation. I remember that as well. Like I could have oral, I could have anal, you could do all the things. And then when we leave that out of education, we're just putting ourselves at risk. Like obviously, I don't believe in a fear or risk-based model for sex education, but we do have to talk about that. We do do have to acknowledge. So if our sex education only teaches like how to put a condom on a penis and the penis goes into the vagina, do we even realize that we need condoms for other types of sexual activities? And we're leaving queer students out of the equation. Absolutely. If you went through school, uh, you know, queer and was just getting all of this heteronormative, heterosexual focused ideas about sex, then it also creates this false hierarchy of first sexual experience that your first sexual experience is just when you get penetrated. So what about the (laughs) penetrators? Like what's what's their deal? Like when does their virginity end? (laughs) And like if I get my mouth penetrated versus my vagina, it that's the you know, and so I'm a big proponent of what whatever is your first sexual experience, what you determined was a sexual experience you know, and what that means for you, if it signifies anything. I mean, it, it might not, but we've placed so much significance on it in order to have this uh, kind of control over what people think about sex and their bodies. Oof. Oh, getting in some like, we're going deep, Jess. We're like, how <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I feel very spoiled being in North America and having access to so many different ways to get sex toys. And we know that in many places in the world, it's either inaccessible or even illegal to get sex toys or access to quality sex toys and information. It may also be important to have discretion if you do have access to sex toys. Now, discretion is a need that we can mostly relate to universally. I mean, most of us don't have our butt plugs displayed out like I do. So if you're looking for a discreet toy that still has lots of power, I recommend the Vibrating Snug Plug 1. 
So this snug plug is small. It's about the size of your thumb, so it's easy to store. It's got a flexible neck and a flared base, so that's really great for both insertion as well as an easy-peasy removal. Now, sometimes toys with motors and vibration can sometimes be really loud, and this is not the case with the vibrating snug plug. It's, it's pretty quiet. It doesn't sound like a lawnmower is in your ass. And um, it's got power, but it's not going to wake up your roommates. So shop at bvibe.com and save 25% off of any bvibe branded products, including the snug plug collection, with code World of Anal. W O R L D O F A N A L. The code expires March 16th, 2022. Okay. All right. So now we're going to Germany. So Other Nature is a, a feminist, queer, and vegan sex shop in Berlin. And it's actually been collectively owned since 2011, which is so small for collectives, especially for sex shop collectives. This is awesome. Hi, this is Kitty May from Other Nature. We're an alternative sex shop in Berlin, Germany. When we talk about anal play with people in the shop, we are sometimes talking to customers who are experienced and sometimes to people who are completely new and want to get some information about how to start um, with anal because it's something they're interested in. We also have customers who haven't mentioned anal play but maybe have just asked for an overview of our products or have asked a very open question about enhancing pleasure. And we would always make sure to include anal play in those conversations, um, both for destigmatizing and normalizing anal pleasure, and also because it might open someone's curiosity or create some inspiration. And because you never know when someone actually maybe is interested in anal, but they haven't actually felt able to say that outright because of some of those taboos. Well, and because anal is obviously something that's open to people regardless of gender or genitals or orientation, we also want to break down those stereotypes that it's for particular people or bodies only and, and really let everyone have the information that, that we can give them. And when we get into more detailed conversations, we're talking with people about, you know, safety things like which toys you can and can't use anally, the importance of lube, some basic anatomy we go through with people. And then advice like things like starting small if you are interested in inserting things into the butt. And beyond that sort of technical stuff, we're really talking a lot with people about relaxation um, and uh, getting to know your own body. And not only how important those things are for anal play, but also how anal play can help you to learn those things, to learn relaxation and to get to know your own body more. We talk about masturbation and how, you know, it can be a really empowering place to start to actually explore butt play by yourself rather than with a partner and how that for a lot of people is really beneficial because you can really lean into the sensations of your own body and just concentrate on what you're experiencing and helping you kind of find your own pace with things as well. And of course, those are all transferable skills that if you then do go on to playing um, with a partner, you've got all of that great knowledge about what your body likes and about how to pace things. And you can also use that for communicating with someone else, perhaps about their body. Um, and we do find that, you know, it's important to give people an idea that there's so many different options when it comes to anal. It doesn't have to be one thing and it might not actually end up being the thing that you thought it was going to be when you first felt this curiosity. And generally, we find that people are very attentive and appreciative and have a lot of questions um, because there isn't necessarily so much great information out there, although there is increasingly more and more if you know where to look for it. Um, so, yeah, we're really trying to equip people with the knowledge they need to get started on this journey. So it's so great to, to hear from sex shops because I feel like sex shops are the hubs for some people as a, a place to get information from a real person, from a credible place where you can actually touch and see things. Um, and especially these like these feminist, you know, queer sex shops are like the superheroes of, of the world, right? Like they are so committed to pleasure-based sex education, quality toys. And, you know, I kind of always pictured Berlin as like this, I don't know, like that there's a fetish festival happening all the time. And, 
<laughs> so it's amazing to hear like other nature educating with the same questions that, that you and I get wherever we are. Absolutely. And what really resonated with me about what she was saying is this development of transferable skills. So Mm. these skills that we're developing for anal are actually skills we ought to be using for all types of sex. It's just that we're more intimidated by anal. So we get into the communication, the soft startup, the getting to know your own body, the exploration, the experimentation, the, you know, letting one, the penetrated partner guide you, the using of lube. These literally apply (laughs) to every type of sex. And And so I think it's a real reminder that we don't have to wait until we run into something challenging or new to practice these skills. If we could normalize these skills across the board, uh, we'd all be so much better off. Yeah, the normalizing of this, like just creating space, not for competition, but for this diversity of experiences and needs. And I know it's easier said than done, but I really think like places like Other Nature and and a lot of other uh, feminist and queer sex shops, like they they are creating this this little um, very responsive kind of a place for people to maybe come in just looking for pleasure, just looking for a big dildo, just looking for a big butt plug, <laughs> you know, and yeah, and it's great because I, I also feel, you know, um, B-Vibe is, is also doing this kind of, of work as well in changing how inclusive or what inclusive marketing looks like, what um, inclusive anal sex toys look like. Like I remember before B-Vibe, I used to just see kind of black and uh, purple, maybe a purple butt plug. And, and then I saw all these fun colors i was like of course i want a fuchsia bop plug up my butt you know? <laughs> and the tie-dye rainbow that's that's <gasps> the one that reminds me of luna that's like oh my god thank you that's like put that on my tombstone you know? if, <laughs> if you were a butt plug what butt plug would you be <laughs> <laughs> i would definitely be a rimming butt plug come on now i want to bring good game which one would you be would you be like i feel like you'd be anal beads because <laughs> i'm Popping, yeah. I, yeah. I think I would be beads. Unpredictable. Pop it yeah. out. Yeah. And like they're interesting, you know, they keep it going. It's like, I feel like really, you you're bored just, as a plug. Really the way you're moving your body and you, you guys guys can't see, but we're actually on video. I know we're not supposed to break that third wall, but I'm doing it. Um, she's moving it like I'm all over the place. It's frenetic. Yeah. I would be vibrating <laughs> anal beads that no one can pin down. <laughs> People who just try and squat over you to, like, get you to, like, stop. <laughs> nope. Psych. Suck it. <laughs> Maybe we should do this as a thing. We'd be like, what kind of butt toy would you be if you were a butt toy? It could be, like, a BuzzFeed, like, survey. <laughs> yeah. They're going to do it. They're going to do it. They are. They're going to listen to this and just want to do it. All right. You called anal beads. I called rimming plugs. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I want to say it is true. Look at brands like B-Vibe who are doing, you know, even a program like this that is highly educational, that's nuanced, that is, you know, drawing from multiple cultures. And so there is this shift toward um, creating more than just products, but creating conversations. And I think it's really important. Oh, me too. Me too. So now we are going to Tiffany. And so Tiffany Mugo is the curator of At The Touch Experience and author of Quirky Quick Guide, which is a a sex guide. Um, They are also a a TEDx speaker and a podcast host of the Basically Life pod. So I will pop all that in the show notes for you. And let's hear what Tiffany has to say. Anal sex is still one of those things that's so taboo within my context. Um, My context being South Africa and Kenya, it's one of those where even when brought up in sex positive spaces, people tend to lose their collective mess. I remember I was once on a radio show and I was talking about pegging and I was telling these straight men about pegging who were helping me host the show, right? So it was a segment and it was supposed to be sex positive and they got so upset about the idea of pegging and so even culturally it's just that idea of like people trying to turn you gay people trying to like you know change your sexual orientation um people doing things that are not good right like so if it's sort of like anal sex what is that about even within a heterosexual context it's sort of like oh, I'm not going to tell you if I am having anal sex because, you know, sex is penis and vagina. And it's it's one of those things that's not really engaged with. And you know everyone's doing it. I think even a lot more people are even trying pegging, but no one is talking about it. 
and it doesn't really crop up within like sort of sex conversations and even the idea of anal to protect virginity it's not something that is like sort of wildly spoken about but you do know that it happens and so like with anal sex it's very very difficult to conceptualize around it and think around it and speak around it because people just don't want to right so either if i know for me personally i bring it up a lot in the context of you know trying new things in bed right you know trying new things that are comfortable trying new things that push your boundaries trying new things in a context and i will always go back to pegging because i feel heterosexual men really need to try pegging and then it just becomes like this really tense conversation so culturally it's not one of those things that crops up a lot um neither is it socially even though i i engage in a lot of sex positive spaces i do know some friends who are into butt plugs who are into anal sex um some colleagues as well working in the sex positive spaces but it's not one of those things that's just wildly spoken about and wildly engaged with um yeah unless it's in the context of you know are the gay men doing it or you know what is this husband wife combo that does try anal sex why are they so wild so that is the context in which i know about anal sex oh tiffany dropping some wisdom about pegging <laughs> Your favorite topic. Right. <laughs> I, I loved hearing from Tiffany because I, I, I think this experience of also treating anal sex and anal pleasure as if there are terms or positions or ways of doing things that are in some sort of evolutionary hierarchy, you know, like penetration is like when you're like winning at anal or, you know, pegging works in this context, whereas someone else might prefer to call it strap on play or to call it something else. And, um, I think that, uh, you know, I, 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 I also remember teaching, um, I lived in, was teaching in Kenya for about two years and I was working mainly with HIV and I was also working mainly with farmers. And it was so interesting because like you said, like you've got this diversity of, of people's experiences. So we had some people that were, you would walk out of my class if I talked about HIV and anal and other people being like, wait, what? Go back to the butt. What what did you say about the butt? <laughs> and, and so, and after every single class, Somebody and multiple people would usually come up to me and they want to know about pleasure. They want to know how to do the sex so that it feels good or how to encourage or ask their partner for something that they think would feel good for them. So what, do you, what are your thoughts on this one? You know, what's so interesting to me is that people are concerned about pleasure because anal sex can be painful, right? Um, and we run into this all the time for people who maybe aren't warmed up enough, um, aren't relaxed, they're tensing their anal sphincters, they're not using enough lube, they're not feeling ready. And I, that's something that I think we don't talk enough about, like pleasure being the driver of all experiences, especially when we get into this as you said, hierarchy. It's like a checklist where like, and I, you know, I joked about the first time I had it. I was so proud of myself. Yeah. Now I also enjoyed it. But it was like a thing that um, I didn't feel pressure to do it at all. But it was just a thing that I tried multiple times and it had felt not so comfortable. And so I just, you know, I'm pretty selfish. I'm not going to keep doing something that doesn't feel good for me. Um, but also that probably comes from whatever um, privilege or empowerment I was, I had at the time. Like I was raised with, um, Anyhow, to go back to pleasure, like why do we not focus on the pleasure of it as opposed to the how-to, right? Like, and so I'm glad that you're saying that people were coming up, up to you and asking you not just how-to, but how do I make sure this feels good for me, feels good for my partner? And, you know, I think this is the time to bring up the golden rule, my golden rule of anal that really makes people mad. My golden rule of anal is that if you're going to put something in someone else's butt, you have to also put something in your own first so that you get to know the butt. And this especially I find like a lot of like cis hetero men get really angry about this one. And I'm like, I'm not saying you have to twist and turn your own dick up your own butt. I'm just saying like, can you not put your pinky finger up there and start to get to know it? Uh, and if you have so many hangups around the butt, that are your own, why are you so insistent on putting it up someone else's butt? Yes. And it's like anything that becomes 
I think, revered at the top of the sexual hierarchy. So right now I would say like what I see in hetero context is anal sex, threesomes, and squirting. And everybody wants to learn how to do them. And of course, we're here to absolutely, you know, provide some information and guidance. However... We also, like, really what I want to do is say, here are the tools, here's the, here are the strategies, but enjoy the process. And if you don't, don't do it. And don't, and I, I find, and you may find this as well, some people try anal and they, like, they really work it up and they, they get to the exact type of sex they want to be having and then they're let down. Like, same thing with threesomes. Yes. There's a lot of toes in the room. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and so just because something has been idealized in porn or in dominant cultural norms doesn't mean you're going to love it. So be open to loving it, hating it, feeling neutral, and don't feel pressure. Oh, that's such a great takeaway for everyone. And you've given us so many great takeaways today, Jess. Thank you so much for being here to engage us again and also make me laugh. And we got to talk about butt stuff. Your wisdom is so incredible. And I keep learning from you every single time that, that we speak. And what do you, what, where can people find you? What do you have coming up that people can devour? Uh, you know, first I'll say the feeling is mutual. You are you're brilliant. You're funny. You're punny. You're my absolute favorite. I love hanging with you. Uh, and folks can follow me at Sex with Dr. Jess. And please listen to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Really appreciate it. If you can go ahead and subscribe on any podcast platform. Yes, we'll pop that all in the show notes too. Thank you so much, Jess. You're the best. My pleasure. Thank you, Luna. Oh, I could talk with Jess about pleasure for days. And I feel so lucky that we were gifted this opportunity to hear from incredibly inspiring sex educators doing pleasure work around the world. I think my big takeaways from this episode is that while skills for pleasure you know, can still center around communication and emotional and physical safety, preparation techniques for pleasure, and learning about pleasure anatomy, there's also so much more to our lived experience that's influenced by things like geography or society or culture and the, the narratives and values and context that, that is provided through those vessels. And so these are also really important things to make space for in our pleasure conversations and even with our partners. So asking ourselves, you know, how do we show up in our pleasure? What areas are more challenging? What uh, skills or things do we wish we had that we don't have? You know, what would add to our, our pleasure, pleasure experiences? Society, culture, movies, porn, you know, all of these these things have, have also given us particular ideas that may resonate with us or may not. And so getting curious about this stuff and whether these things actually still affirm the type of pleasure and intimacy and connection and partners you want to have is a really great way of of getting curious about your relationship to yourself and your own sexuality and your partner. It can open up a lot of, of empathy. So I would love to hear from you about what things might have influenced the ways in which you take up space in your body or in the bedroom you know what kinds of narratives have you learned from social context or social constructs um, and in your pursuit of the kind of pleasure that that you want what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way so you can leave us a voice message uh, anonymously at speakpipe.com slash the plug podcast and you can find all of the info of our guests and where to follow them in our show notes. So until next time, friends, stay bootyful.